Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as FAIR has noted year after year, corporate media's annual tributes to Martin Luther King Jr. do a lot of disfiguring and co-opting of his words and his work, which if you think about it, tells us how powerful and disruptive those words and that work were and still are. The actual Martin Luther King said in 1961, quote, call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all God's children, close quote. The Washington Post managed to translate that into a 2017 editorial headlined, quote, Martin Luther King Jr. was a true conservative, close quote. U.S. media elites have gotten comfortable with what writer Adam Johnson calls their wall calendar version of King, in which he represents the good left, unmoved by racial nationalism and Marxist ideology. With Patrice Lumumba assassinated by the CIA in 1961 as the newly elected leader of the Democratic Republic of Congo, the story is different. Look up Lumumba on the anniversary of his murder and you'll find, well, nothing really, except maybe a story about how street vendors in Kinshasa are being pushed off Lumumba Boulevard to prepare for a visit by the Pope. Martin Luther King, corporate media would have it, offers a lesson about hopes and dreams and the slow but steady push toward progress. Lumumba's assassination, judging by media attention, has zero lessons for U.S. citizens or the press corps to learn about the past, the present, or the future. Well, that's how you know you should pay attention. Maurice Carney is the co-founder and executive director of the group Friends of the Congo, and he has another story, and we're going to hear about that today. We'll talk with him in a moment, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. A recent guest essay in the New York Times concluded a searing takedown of our technology overlords with the sentence, quote, We have a technologically driven shift of power to ideological individuals and organizations whose lack of appreciation for moral nuance and good governance puts us all at risk, close quote. So you might think, wow, I didn't know the New York Times had it in it to take on Google, Meta, and Amazon so directly. And as Dorothy Benz writes for FAIR.org, you would be right. Because the technology overlords in this op-ed are not Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, or Elon Musk. They're the software engineers supporting the open source messaging app Signal. And the piece, headlined The Signal App and the Danger of Privacy at All Costs by Reed Blackman, makes the case for corporate and government surveillance by demonizing freedom from such surveillance as a dangerous plot by unnamed technologists who are developing and deploying applications of their technologies 
for explicitly ideological reasons. That ideology, it appears, is privacy. Signal's website says, quote, we believe championing user privacy means keeping your data out of anyone's hands, close quote. For Blackman, writing for The Times, that needs the addendum that, quote, criminals have also used this government evading technology, close quote. Well, this fear-mongering is familiar, and it rests on an old authoritarian argument that law-abiding citizens have nothing to hide and therefore nothing to lose from government intrusion. What about the young woman who needs an abortion and needs to make sure her messages are not tracked? What of the BLM activist planning a protest who wants to avoid police sweeping up and tear-gassing demonstrators? What about the transgender teenager looking for support who needs to hide their identity from their parents? They're all potential criminals to black men because they're all targeted by various state and federal laws. And opposition to such targeting, quote, reflects a lack of faith in good governance, which is essential to any well-functioning organization or community seeking to keep its members and society at large safe from bad actors, close quote. Well, that's a very revealing sentence. According to Blackman, the threat to a well-ordered society where people are safe from bad actors comes from a lack of faith in the good intentions of government. But for those outside of ruling circles, the bad actors too often are government actors. As Benz explains, unethical and illegal government surveillance happens all the time. From the massive NSA surveillance programs that Edward Snowden exposed in 2013, to the surveillance of Muslims by the New York Police Department, to the routine surveillance of people planning peaceful protests by the Department of Homeland Security's fusion centers. But Blackman goes a little further. There's something sneaky in all of this, he says, accusing Signal of surreptitiously making its users carry out its rather extreme ideology of privacy. Scaling up its technology is scaling up its ideology, he says. Users are, quote, witting or unwitting advocates of the moral views of the 40 or so people who operate Signal, close quote. Well, why are Signal's politics more sinister or more ideological than Meta's? Does Blackman really believe that Signal users are unknowingly furthering an agenda any more than Google or Amazon users? Well, you won't learn that from Blackman himself, a corporate and government consultant whose specialty is artificial intelligence. As Dorothy Benz notes, if there is a case to be made that routine surveillance of the sort enabling harvesting metadata is compatible with a democratic society, well, this op-ed is not that case. What it is instead is a manipulative, intentionally alarmist attack on the very idea that people have a right to online privacy. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by this radio station and by the Media Watch Group Fair. (music) 
Counterspin listeners will have heard a number of tributes to Martin Luther King Jr. this past week, a few searching, many shallow. Importantly, the King holiday usually includes attention to his assassination as well as to his life and work. Though even the best reports, if we're talking about corporate media, fail to draw the straightest lines between the two. This week also marks the anniversary of another assassination, that of Patrice Lumumba, the first elected prime minister of the post-independence Democratic Republic of the Congo. Elite media appear to find that 1961 murder harder to pave over and easier to just ignore. But thinking about it, learning about it, involves the same sort of challenges to the U.S. role in the world and how racism shapes that role, lessons that we very obviously still need to learn. We're joined now by Maurice Carney, co-founder and executive director of the group Friends of the Congo. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Maurice Carney. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. It's my pleasure to be back with you. Well, I will ask you to begin where we have in the past with a reminder to listeners about January 1961 and the circumstances of Patrice Lumumba's assassination. How was the U.S. involved, but also why was the U.S. involved? Yes, the United States was directly involved. In fact, you mean the United States State Department released declassified documents uh, a number of years ago, in the last seven years or so. And uh, those declassified documents uh, reveal that the operation in the Congo on the part of the United States and its Central Intelligence Agency, a covert operation, was the largest in the world at that time in terms of financing. And the chief of station Larry Devlin, chief of station of the CIA in the Congo, he wrote a book entitled Chief of Station Congo, and he lays out why that uh, the United States felt that Congo was important and that it remained in the sphere of influence of the United States. Uh, Larry Devlin said, uh, in essence, that if we did not overthrow Lumumba, not only would we have lost the Congo, we would have lost all of Africa. So... Devlin centered the Congo uh, as a part of U.S. overall foreign policy, strategic policy uh, for the African continent. So the overthrow of Lumumba was vital to the United States. And we say overthrow because in Devlin's book, it's really a playbook uh, that he lays out for how the United States moves against democratically elected leaders who are not necessarily inclined to toe Washington's line. And that was the problem that the United States had with Lumumba, that he was an African nationalist and a Pan-Africanist, one who loved his people, loved the continent. And uh, as Malcolm X stated, he was the greatest African leader to ever walk the African continent. And the reason why Malcolm X said that is because Uh, He saw that the U.S. couldn't reach Lumumba in the sense that they couldn't corrupt him. Uh, They couldn't entice him 
to sell out his, his people uh, for trinkets, uh, just like uh, some of the other Congolese leaders had done. So the Congo was key, and is key for a whole host of reasons that uh, we can share a little later. Well, and the idea that the CIA chief of station, Larry Devlin, would use the pronoun we, we might lose Africa. Yes. This is so deeply meaningful in terms of policy narrative, and here's where media come in to play their role of serving this narrative. And I know that you've spoken in the past about the role that U.S. news media played in working with the CIA and Larry Devlin and other U.S. foreign policymakers to destabilize Congo and Lumumba. I mean, media storytelling carried a lot of weight here. Absolutely. Absolutely. The narrative is critical. A number of years ago, we talked about Time magazine at, uh, at the time was portraying uh, Lumumba as a monster, as uh, basically laying the groundwork to justify his liquidation, removal from power. Because we paint this picture of a, a monster to the global media. When covert action is actually implemented by the Central Intelligence Agency, the U.S. government, uh, then no one, you know, folks are going to say, well, oh, he was a monster anyway. So it doesn't matter if he was democratically elected. Right. It doesn't matter if he was a legitimate prime minister. He was a bad guy. <laughs> and the United States and its media and its people see themselves as the good guys. Yep. So if the good guys move in and get rid of the bad guy, then it's, it's fine. And, and this is really an important point, too, Janine, because that narrative, these people who were involved at the time, some of them are really still alive today. Yep. They write books and they make films to paint themselves in a positive light because of their concern of the repercussions of history when the truth actually comes out in terms of the dastardly role that it played in not only removing a democratically elected leader who was subsequently assassinated, but also imposing a dictatorship over the Congolese people, in essence, destroying any prospects of a peaceful, democratic, prosperous country in the heart of the richest continent on the, on the planet. So recounting the story and correcting the history and continuing to tell the story, especially uh, during the commemoration this, the, of his uh, assassination is so vital it's so critical, and it's not something that is stuck in the past, but it's very, very much relevant for today because the same forces that were at play in the 60s to remove Lumumba are at play today in terms of keeping the Congolese from advancing and fully benefiting from the enormous wealth that's in their country, which is what Lumumba stood for. He made it clear in no uncertain terms that he was going to serve the interests of the Congolese people. He was going to leverage the wealth of the Congo, not only for the benefit of Congo, but for Africa as a whole. This basically scared Western powers because they thought they were going to lose access to the resources that we've learned over the decades that are just vital to a whole range of industries, not only in the West, but global industries. 
Well, this is absolutely a story about this very day today. And it's so important to not think of this as a historical commemoration. But when I looked for coverage, I found pretty much nothing in terms of U.S. media coverage. But I did find, for example, when I was just looking for references to Lumumba, one of the things I found was the Dutch prime minister's official apology for that country's role in slavery and in the trading of enslaved people. And I wanted to ask the role of these official statements about apologies, which is not the same thing as a truth and reconciliation conversation, but these official apologies in the context of a general informational void about the specific actions and attitudes that created the phenomenon that now official people are sad about. And with context to Congo, I just wonder, like, this is the coverage. This is what media cover is when a powerful person says, I'm officially sorry. And that's not the kind of coverage we need. Right. And that's in line with narratives over the past few years, right? Because even this uh, summer of 2022, uh, you have the Belgian king who had gone back to Congo. He didn't apologize for the role that Belgium played in basically plundering and destroying the Congo, but he said he he regretted. And uh, this apology, regret, it's really important. Remember one of the events that shot Lumumba into world attention was his June 30th, 1960 inauguration speech, where he laid out in excoriating detail the nature and the scope of the brutality of King Leopold II and the Congo and Belgian colonialism. So listen, we're talking about some 60 years later where you have uh, the Dutch or the Belgians issuing apologies or, or regret, uh, it really doesn't carry weight for the masses of Africans. And uh, I say that because uh, if you recall the passing of, uh, of the Queen of England, and if you look at the coverage, you saw that Africans, you know, writ large, were basically celebrating and recounting in detail the atrocities that the British colonial power carried out, not only in Africa, but certainly in India and, uh, and in Asia. Yeah. Uh, so this apology narrative, Janine, it's, it's really an elite affair, and <laughs> the broadcasting of it is sharing the crocodile tears of elites. But if you consult the masses, if you look at the oppressed masses, the working class, you'll find the type of response that they have, not only to colonialism, but also to neocolonialism and contemporary capitalist and imperialist exploitation of their lands. And you'll find outrage, you'll find anger, and you'll find people teeming to demand change of the power relations that exist currently in the world today. Well, I know that Friends of the Congo works year-round, but that you also use every January 17th to uplift the life and the murder and the legacy of Patrice Lumumba, as well as that of Joseph Okito and Maurice Mpolo, who also died on that yeah. day, right? And I, I would like you to talk a little bit about the goals of the action 
that you do every year because it's not just lamentation. It's about more. Exactly. Exactly. We commemorate Lumumba to remind the world not only of the imbalance in the power dynamics between the Western world and the global South, but also to remind people of the principles and ideas that Lumumba lived for and ultimately died, self-sufficiency, self-determination, pan-Africanism, internationalism. And those principles obtain to this day, and they've been embraced by young Congolese in particular, young Africans in general, who are carrying out, building on the legacy of Lumumba. So the cry is, Lumumba lives, that is to say, his ideas, his principles. And I was in an exchange with one young Congolese before our commemoration yesterday, and he was sharing that there are a thousand Lumumbas in the Congo today. So what we try to highlight is the extent to which the current generation has taken up the mantle and is continuing that pursuit for a self-determined, independent Congo that is inextricably linked to the self-determination and independence of the African continent as a whole. So that's why we uh, declare January 17th of each year, Lumumba Day. And people go to lumumbaday.org and they sign up to take action, either get a resolution passed commemorating the day. They can sign up to support the youth who are carrying on the tradition of Lumumba. They can be a part of the current movement in the Congo that is very much as critical today as it was during the time of Lumumba. So it's very current, very contemporary, and speaks to the tremendous importance that Congo carries, not only for Africa, but for the world as a whole, being part of the second largest rainforest in the world and is vital in the fight against the climate crisis. And at the same time, Janine, being the storehouse of strategic minerals such as cobalt, which are vital in the pursuit of a renewable energy revolution. So it's at the nexus of critical resources that are vital to the future of the welfare of the planet as a whole. Well, I just wanted to ask you if you have another minute in you about precisely that, that Congo is not a story of the past. Congo is very much a story of the present. And I wonder if U.S. journalists or journalists listening to this are looking to connect the history and the ongoing history of exploitation to the current exploitation and are looking for stories as inroads to that. Are there particular issues or stories that you would direct, you know, an enterprising U.S. reporter who's looking to get into this? What should they start at? Oh, my goodness. There are so many. And if you're talking about questions of peace and security, we see the instability unfolding in the Congo as a result of, in large part, U.S. foreign policy and financing and backing proxy leaders in neighboring countries. So peace and security questions. Congo has suffered the deadliest conflict in the world since World War II. It'd be interesting to see a comparative between uh, the response that we have in Ukraine in the media and what we see in the Congo, which the United Nations says is the deadliest conflict in the world since World War II, where an estimated 6 million people have lost their lives 
but yet the coverage seems to to lack in comparison to how Ukraine is uh, is covered. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about the Green New Deal and uh, climate crisis and uh, renewable energy revolution, you have to talk about Congo. There's so many stories that you can address in that kind of uh, uh, pursuit. The minerals, cobalt, critical to renewable energy sector, the Congo Basin, which is the second largest rainforest in the world, and yet it sequesters more carbon than the Amazon itself. It is the largest repository of peatlands and tropical peatlands in the world. It stores enough carbon that can address the carbon emissions of the United States for 20 years. So it's just a tremendous number of stories that can be addressed. And then you have a situation where you have uh, Congolese, uh, 70 million of them living on less than $2 a day, while one billionaire by the name of Dan Gertler, he makes $200,000 a day from royalties from Congo's minerals. So uh, the question of poverty, exploitation, plunder, that can be explored by journalists as, as well. Uh, so there's just a tremendous amount of stories that uh, can be written around the Congo because its significance, as I stated earlier, is not just for Africa alone, but for the world. And therefore, it demands the world's attention and it demands in-depth, nuanced treatment, um, not only of the Congo itself, but of the Congolese people and the uh, enormous courage and dignity that they stand on in confronting the challenges that they face. We've been speaking with Maurice Carney of Friends of the Congo. Find their work online at friendsofthecongo.org. Maurice Carney, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Thank you, Janine. My pleasure. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website. It's FAIR.org. The website is also the place to sign up for our newsletter extra or for our email list. It's also the place to show support for the show if you are able and so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.